Well, most of you have uh, no doubt heard of the shoe store Payless Shoes. How many of you have heard of Payless Shoes? Some of you have, <laughs> some of you have probably bought shoes from Payless for Christmas. They're typically known, um, no offense to those excited about Payless, but they're typically known for fairly cheap shoes, $20, $30, somewhere in that range. Um, recently, uh, so they're known for cheap shoes, and they're also kind of known for shoes of not the highest quality. Um, and so they, they wanted to challenge that stereotype recently. And so what they did was they set up a fake luxury shoe store in Los Angeles. And they, they set it up so that it looks fancy and they put the name on the front of the store as Pelesi. <laughs> and so this is a true story. This really just happened recently. You can look this up. And uh, so they, they set the store up, Pelesi, and they invited um, fashion savvy locals people who are very influential on social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, and they invited them to come into this brand new shoe store, this fancy shoe store, and they put out red carpet, so they walked the red carpet into the, the shoe store. Everything was set up su just in such a way to look very, very desirable. They served champagne to them while they're shopping for shoes, and they asked them what they would spend on these very uh, luxurious shoes that were in front of them, and they stocked it with regular Payless shoes. Well, the shoppers bought the deception hook, line, and sinker, and some of them said they would pay $400 or $600 for a pair, so all of you are justified now in shopping at Payless, right? <laughs> they said they'd pay $400 or $600 for a pair of 1999 pumps at at Payless, and it really was just because of the way they were presented, because of the environment that the shoes were in. And the, the fashion experts talked about how high quality these shoes were, and they described them as elegant and sophisticated shoes. Now, <laughs> we lived in Los Angeles for four years, and we didn't really shop at places like that, but I'm confident that a fake shoe store like that wouldn't work here in Downriver, Detroit. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we aren't susceptible to being deceived in other areas, particularly when it comes to religion and to matters of ultimate importance. And the thing about something that's fake, whether it's a shoe store or whether it's phony religion, is that phony religion never presents itself as such, as something that is fake. It obviously doesn't do that. Just like that shoe store presented these shoes as something that would be $400 or $600, phony religion always presents itself as something genuine and as something real. And oftentimes, it's hard to tell the difference. It's deceptive. It's subtle. And we can even attend a church that faithfully for years has taught the word of God and we can cultivate phony religion in our own private lives. And we're susceptible to that. And it's that temptation that we want to address this morning from this passage in Mark chapter 12. So I'd invite you to turn to Mark 12 verses 35 to 44 with me. 
And this passage is recounting Jesus' final interaction with the religious leaders in the courtyard of the temple. And in this passage this morning, we're going to see three symptoms of phony religion that challenge us to genuine faith. So three symptoms of phony religion. We're going to try to identify where these shoes are fake. All right, something's going on with this here. Um, We're going to try to identify where the shoes are fake, and we're going to be challenged to genuine faith there. What do I need to do? Use that mic. I can. This is going to sound wonderful on the recording (laughs) online. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. All right. Let's let him turn my mic off before I move anywhere. And then we'll use this one. All right, are we good? Can you guys hear me? Okay, excellent. Good, so three symptoms of phony religion that challenge us to genuine faith, all right? And the first one of these is found in verses 35 to 37. It is an inadequate view of Christ, all right? An inadequate view of Christ. So keep in mind the context here of of what we're looking at. Uh, Since chapter 11, Jesus has been dealing with these various religious leaders, these various groups, and they've been challenging him, and they've been trying to trip him up. Um, Last time, normally it was groups, and last time we saw in chapter 12, it was a single scribe who came up to Jesus and asked him a genuine question. So things had kind of shifted a little bit from these groups trying trying to trip him up. This single scribe comes up to him, asks him a genuine question, And the scribe was even commended for his interaction with with Jesus. And look what it says at the end of verse 34. We didn't really address this last time, but this kind of prepares us for the transition here. Verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And it was like at that point, after hearing Jesus respond in such a wise way to the scribe, it's like everyone watching thought, this is useless to try to trip this guy up. He's answered so well and so consistently that we really don't want to mess with him anymore. And you would think that maybe it would end there, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. It sort of had reached neutral ground. They'd been on the attack, and now it had kind of reached neutral ground where nobody was going to mess with him anymore. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Instead, he actually goes on the offensive and begins to attack particularly the the scribes. Look at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So they've been trying to prove that he is the fake, that he's the phony, and now he's going to show just how phony their religion actually is. And so he asks them this question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, just a reminder here of who the scribes are. The scribes are those people, they're, they're the experts in the Old Testament during this time. 
And Jesus is targeting something specific that they were teaching and they were propagating here. And when you read this, at first glance, this looks completely and totally fine, doesn't it? They're teaching that the Christ or the Messiah is the son of David. They're teaching that he, the, the Messiah, would be of Davidic descent. And that's, that's accurate. That's true, but it's not sufficient. It's not adequate. It's not an adequate view of the Messiah that they're holding. It's only a partial truth, and partial truths get us into a lot of trouble, as you'll see here. And so Jesus is going to expose the inadequacy of their view, and he's going to do that using the Old Testament. Look at what he does in verse 36 here. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament. And if you have a cross-reference here in your Bible, it takes you to Psalm 110. So Jesus quotes here from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the passage most frequently quoted in the New Testament. And it's a psalm that is written by David, and it's a royal psalm. So think about David and who he was. David was the king in Israel, and David was the one who God had made certain promises to. And he made these promises in 2 Samuel 7. He'd made a covenant with David, and he said to David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne, and he's going to reign forever. And so David knew that reality. David was a poet. And so he wrote this psalm, or this poem in Psalm 110, meditating and thinking about that future descendant. And it says here, Jesus says that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote that. I mean, right there in verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit. So David is thinking about this future descendant. He doesn't know all the details, but he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as he's thinking about this future king, he says something in particular at the beginning. He says that the Lord, and there's two different words used here in Hebrew, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, says to my Lord, and that's the word Adonai, the one who has authority over me. And so he says, God, the Lord, says to the one who has authority over me. And so what Jesus is doing here by referring to these words is he's challenging the scribe's belief that the Messiah was merely a descendant of David. David here calls this future descendant his Lord. And certainly he didn't know all the details of what this would look like, but he understands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this future king would be someone who would exceed him in greatness and who would exceed him in majesty. Now, during Jesus' day, it was very common for the people to expect a Messiah who would be of Davidic descent. That was not unusual. They believed in the promises of the Old Testament. They believed that God would rescue his people from foreign oppression. And so they were looking for this. They had certain expectations of a political ruler who would come in. But Jesus here is challenging that understanding. And he's indicating that that merely human descendant of David, that understanding of Messiah is inadequate. It's not enough. Look at verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he 
his son? How is he merely his son? How can David speak of his future descendant and call him the one who has authority over him? This wouldn't make sense if this individual was just one of his descendants. And so the scribes had clearly missed this in the Old Testament. And so because they had missed this, when Jesus comes along and starts doing the things that he was doing, they have an inadequate understanding of him and they're not ready for him. Now, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark, as we've been, you know that Mark has set us up that the Messiah is so much more than just the descendant of David. He is that, but he's more. He sets the tone for the entire book in Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he puts both of those together there. He is the, the Christ, he's the Messiah, but this main character in this book I'm about to write is the Son of of God. And so you read this with that understanding in the background. And really, when you and I think about this, and we think about phony religion, what you believe about Jesus Christ and who he is, is the foundation of all your other beliefs and all your other actions. This is the starting point. Misunderstanding the person of Jesus breaks down your entire worldview. And it puts you on ground that is unsteady and destined to break down. Listen to how the Apostle John puts this in 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. So this first thing he says about this, believing the right things about Christ indicates that you are from God. Look what he says further. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And then he brings it all together in 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so what you get in 1 John here is a picture of, that shows us that the one who says he knows God and has been born of God believes that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of God. That's the right understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And when you believe that, when you believe those two things, that he's the descendant of David and that he's the divine son of God, then he has certain claims on your life. When you believe those two things, when he says things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, then those words have implications for the way that you and I live. You live in a certain way when the divine son of God, who's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, says to you, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus makes those claims on us because he truly is Lord. I mean, look at the passage that Jesus quotes here 
in Mark chapter 12 and verse 36. It's from Psalm 110. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What does he actually say about David's Lord, this future Messiah? He tells him that God has this Messiah sit at his right hand in the seat of authority and power, and that God will put all enemies under his son's feet. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110, but he's echoing back to the introduction to the Psalter, which is Psalm 2. And I want to read you Psalm 2 very quickly this morning. This psalm sets the tone for the whole Psalter, And it's a meditation on the future king and on what God is going to do when the nations rebel against him. And look here, as I read this, I want you to look at how this psalm describes this king and God's actions through this king, all right? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If he's truly the Lord, the divine Son of God, and the Davidic Messiah, then the only appropriate response to him is to bow the knee and to kiss the Son. And getting that wrong will lead to a host of other problems. Let's look at a couple more of those. The next symptom of phony religion that flows from this inadequate view of Christ is a hypocritical motivations. Verses 38 through 40, hypocritical motivation. So Jesus has asked this sort of enigmatic question and he doesn't really give a clear answer here, but obviously he's he's leading them to think about who he is and his work and what he's done. And you can see at the end of verse 37, the great throng heard him gladly. And now he goes even more on the offensive and attacks the motivations of these these scribes and the way these expose their phony religion. Look at verse 30. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Beware. I mean, remember the, the circumstances in which he's doing this, right? He's just had a scribe interact with him. He's been talking to religious leaders. There's a huge crowd of people around him in the courtyard of the temple. And Jesus tells the throng that is hearing him gladly, beware of these people. Look out for them. Be on the watch for them. Why? 
Well, in verses 38 to 40, he gives a series of motivations, a series of actions here that betray a motivation that's at the heart of what they do. And a lot of these actions initially seem to be very religious, seem to be very passionate about the things of the Lord, but in reality, they only serve a wicked heart and a wrong motivation. So as I read these, see if you can identify the common thread that ties all of these wrong actions together. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. So they do a number of things here that Jesus identifies. They walk around in these long prayer shawls that go all the way to the ground and they set them apart from the common people. They want people to know that they're in a spirit of prayer and they're constantly praying to God. They wore these to be noticed by people and to be greeted rabbi in the marketplace. They love that. Lesser people during this day would greet those who they considered greater. And so they wanted people to know how great they were and they wanted them to greet them with these titles in the marketplace. Not only that, they want the best seats in the house. They want the seats of honor. If they're at a gathering in in the synagogue, The seat of honor would have been placed in the front facing the crowd. And so they wanted the ability to address the crowd and they wanted people to see them and to notice them. They wanted lots of attention for their spiritual status. And that even spilled over into banquets that they would go to, maybe even at weddings. They wanted to be seated in a place of honor, no matter how close they were to the family, just because they were religious leaders. But then you run into one of these that doesn't seem to be in any way connected to religion. I mean, look what it says there. They're devouring widows' houses. That sounds pretty bad up front. (laughs) But what's happening here is widows were often in financial difficulty, great financial difficulty, because when their husband would die, they probably had no way to get income. And most people didn't have any use for a widow after her husband passed away during this time. And so the scribes would swoop in and they would offer to pray for this widow, but then they would take money from the widow for praying for her. They would charge her for performing this prayer. And you can see there that as they're performing this prayer, he uses a word that really encapsulates this whole description here. For a pretense, they make long prayers. I mean, that's the motivation behind everything that Jesus lists here. Everything they did was was with a pretense. They, They projected a false motive. They didn't want you to know what was truly in their heart and what they were really going after. They wanted to seem spiritual and humble, but their heart was really bent on receiving the praise of men. Everything they did was for appearance sake. Now, this is probably the symptom of phony religion that you and I are most familiar with and that we understand most quickly. Someone who does things with a false motivation, they put on a show to get attention from people. You know what it's like to watch someone do this and to see that they're obviously just trying to appear spiritual, and to appear put together. 
And you know that the Bible speaks very clearly on hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes after hypocrisy when participating in religious activities, in prayer, in giving, in fasting. And really, phony religion has to be rooted in false motivation. They go together hand in hand because you don't have a right grasp of the person and work of Christ. You're not in love with him. And so there's something else driving you to do these things and to appear spiritual. But for you and I, here's the, here's the beauty of the way that the New Testament teaches us to live. We always have this struggle between right motivations and right actions. We want to do the right thing, but we know that we should have the right motivation. The Bible teaches us what the right actions are, but it also gives us the right motivations that bring us to the point of action. So your Bible is not just a book of rules. It's not just a list of commandments. It is a list of commandments. The Bible does tell us what is the right ethical thing to do. But along with those commandments, the Bible tells us why we do those things. What is the motivation behind them? What brings you to the point where you participate in those commandments, where you uphold them, where you obey them? And so we don't just exhort people, you have to obey, you have to do these things without a clear and compelling connection to why we do those things. The Bible beautifully gives us both of those and encourages both of those. Scripture is like having both a gas pedal and the gasoline behind the gas pedal. You could push the gas pedal all you want, but you need the motivation behind it that gives power to the action, makes it go somewhere. And the biblical ethic is both motivation and action. You have both of them there. And so the question that always comes up when you talk about these things is, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so what if I don't feel like doing this? What if I don't want to come to church? What if I don't want to read my Bible? I'm not motivated to obey, and I don't want to be a hypocrite, so what do I do? Well, understand, first of all, that the ultimate goal, the biblical goal, is to have both the right motivation and the right action. You want both of those paired together. But also understand, in this life, we're always going to have compromised motivations to some extent. That's going to be a part of living in this fallen world. We're all going to fall short of this in this life. The goal is, right, is both motivations and actions. We're going to fall short of this. But when you don't have the right motivation, when you're just not feeling like it, don't just sit and wait for the motivation to well up within you and try to have the perfect motivation before you do this particular action. That's not what the Bible's calling us to. Act on what you know to be true. You're not a hypocrite when you do that. You're believing God's word and believing that the command he has for you is good. And so act on that. And very often, motivation will follow action. But even when it doesn't, go back to the Bible and understand it gives us the right motivation. So do the right action and then go back to scripture and uncover the right motivation for this action and know that motivation and let that inform the action that you're doing. And you'll grow in the what you're supposed to do and the why you're supposed to do it. 
So the real danger here for these scribes is not that they had no motivation, like it so often is for us, but they had the wrong motivation. Their motivation needed to be corrected by a proper understanding of Scripture and a proper view of Christ. They were seeking the approval of men and using their religious position and activities to get the praise of men. And notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. There's not much worse than using spiritual activities for personal gain and to gain the approval of others. That leads us to our final symptom here. This one may be surprising to you. The exploitation of others. This is a familiar passage to you. I know that. The widow's might. But I want you to keep in mind the context of this passage, okay? So a few days earlier, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and one of the first things he does when he enters Jerusalem is he goes to the temple and cleanses the temple and causes a huge disruption because the temple had become a den of robbers. The system was perverted. And then he curses this fig tree, which is a representative of this entire system and the religious leadership of the system. And then when his authority is challenged, he tells the parable of the vineyard owner and the land or the tenants and how the tenants tried to take the authority from the vineyard owner and tried to do things their way and they ended up killing the son. And then they keep coming at him and trying to trip him up. And now he's going on the offensive against the religious leaders. So this whole section, chapters 11 and 12, have been about indicting the religious leaders of Israel for their perversion of God's system and of God's people. Now he's describing them as hypocritical fakes. So you have to keep that context in mind. And also keep in mind here that one of the things that the scribes do is they devour widows' houses, all right? And that's significant. Their wickedness leads them to use and abuse widows. Now, let's start reading in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering. So, This treasury was in a different court, so he and his disciples have moved to the court of the women. It's right next to the court of the Gentiles in the temple. And the treasury was made up of these collection boxes, and each of these collection boxes had a ram's horn that would come off of it, and you'd put your coins in the ram's horn, and they would sort of slide down into the collection box. And each of them was for some sort of different offering, but all of it went to the temple, to the religious leaders, to support the system there. So Jesus sits down and he watches and he notices rich people coming in and giving quite a bit of money. The rest of verse 41, many rich people put in large sums, but notice who comes in next. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. The amount she gave was virtually nothing. It was insignificant. But Jesus takes note of it and he teaches his disciples. Look what he says to them in verses 43 and 44. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. 
Now, God makes it very clear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that he has a special heart for widows and for orphans, who are, for those who are on the outskirts of society, particularly financially. The temple establishment was supposed to help and take care of the widows. Here, instead of helping, they are willingly taking her last bit of money from her without offering any help to her. They're devouring her house through their system and through their exploitation. And they're willingly do it, doing it. Notice what Jesus says in verse 44. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She doesn't have anything left to live on. One commentator said it this way, and I thought this was helpful. The temple establishment was supposed to have provided social protection and economic assistance to widows. Instead, under the leadership of the scribes, it had become an institution of oppression. So this little story, I don't think is primarily here to teach us to give everything we have to Jesus. Put your last two mites in the offering plate. Give everything you have to him. I, I can see how you come to that interpretation if you, if you pull this story out of the context in which it comes. But when you read this in the context in which it comes, it is the culmination of a series of conflicts with the religious leaders and with the religious establishment. And you're going to see just how serious that is next week when we look at Mark 13. But when you read it that way as the culmination of this series of conflicts, I think it comes pretty easy to see that Jesus is pointing out that phony religion exploits the most needy and the poorest among us. This is exactly what happens. This is the danger when people practice their religion for selfish gain instead of for love out of love for God and love for other people. And this is way more common than we probably realize, right? This happens all the time in our country and all the time all over the world. You have seen the TV preachers on TBN, haven't you? This is what they're doing. They go to places that are not well off financially. They reach out to people through the TV who don't have a lot of money a widow who's on social security, people like Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen. They live in lavish mansions. Creflo Dollar claims he needs a private jet for his ministry. And they take money from the poor and needy through their message of health and wealth. It's phony religion and it's a travesty and it won't just impact you, it damages other people as well. And so this is the last indictment here on this establishment, on the way in which their phony religion is using and abusing the poorest in Israelite society. Now, obviously we want to avoid phony religion and those who propagate it, right? Um, I'm thinking watching Joel Osteen is, is not the wisest thing to do, but my guess is most of us are not tempted with that particular temptation. But we are prone to the same sort of pretense in much smaller ways, I think. We want to put on a good face so that we can make people believe we're super spiritual. We're all tempted to this. We're all tempted toward phony religion. 
And I want to tell each person here today that the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from phony religion in all its forms. We do not have to put on a facade. You don't have to hide your messiness. You don't have to avoid people knowing that you're a sinner. You don't have to make people think that you're super godly and that you're perfect. We're all broken. We're all needy. And Jesus has died for our brokenness and he fully accepts us in our brokenness. That's the gospel message. Then he uses other broken Christians who are honest about their faults and their brokenness to make us holy and to grow us and to change us. We are instruments in his hands, even in our brokenness, to be used for other people's goods. And so we can be honest with one another about our our brokenness and about the ways in which we fail. We don't have to put on this facade any longer. And we don't have to do that because of what Jesus has done for us. So the amazing thing about this passage, I think, is Jesus here exposes phony religion. And this is a constant temptation, I think, for us in small ways and maybe in big ways, too. We're tempted to have an inadequate view of Christ. We're tempted to have the wrong motivation. We're even tempted to, maybe in small ways, exploit others through trying to be spiritual or hiding our brokenness. Jesus exposes that here, and this exposure is ultimately what leads to his death because of the way he interacts with the scribes and the Pharisees, the way he indicts them. But that death is ultimately what saves us from phony religion. Now we can be genuine in our faith, in all of our brokenness, because of the forgiveness offered through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for this exposure of phony religion even this morning. I pray that you would work in our hearts, help us to understand how damaging putting on a pretense can be, wrong motivations can be, how damaging an inadequate view of Christ can be. And then I pray that in our brokenness, we would seek out others who can help us strive for a genuine faith before you. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for what he's done. We thank you for your love. It's in his name we pray, amen.